lead for sustainable investment in inclusion of Grow Asia. Erin uh, leads the implementation of the action plan for the ASEAN guidelines on responsible agricultural investments or the ASEAN RAI, as well as Grow Asia's gender mainstreaming initiatives. Erin is trained as an urban planner specializing in food systems policy and has worked and lived in the United States, uh, South America, South Asia, and the Caribbean. Erin was a Fulbright scholar based in Singapore uh, uh, where she conducted research on urban food systems and consumer demand for locally grown food. With that, over to you, Erin. Thank you so much, Vijay. And it's a huge pleasure to be here today. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'd like to add that although, um, as you just shared, Vijay, in my bio, that I coordinate the regional implementation of the ASEAN guidelines for GrowAsia, there are many partners, some of whom I know are on the line today, who are also very much involved in the implementation of these guidelines. Um, and of course, including the PPSA team yourselves. So it's really my honor to be here to share a bit of background and how the ASEAN guidelines for on promoting responsible investment in food, agriculture, and forestry can also inform and help support both policymakers, private sector investors, as well as NGOs and farmer organizations to implement climate smart practices. So Vijay, you can go on to the next slide, please. Thank you. I wanted to share just by setting a bit of context about why we even need a set of guidance or guidelines related to investments in agriculture in ASEAN. So for those who might not know, agriculture and forestry account for about 12% of regional GDP, but of course, much more in some countries. And this GDP is driven largely by 15,000 agribusinesses in the region that employ over 100 million people in the sector. We also know that investments from particular regions such as the EU are heavily increasing in ASEAN, which means that investors functioning in ASEAN have to increasingly use sustainable practices during those investments. Next slide, please. But GrowAsia is also aware, hearing from our 580 plus partners across the region, that there are actually quite a few barriers to being able to invest using sustainable practices. So those would include social, environmental, economic, and governance, good governance practices. So those barriers range from uncertain markets to high upfront costs and a lack of financing for investing in those sustainable practices, which often involves hiring consultants um, or working with others. And then differences across the region in terms of specific national policies that guide those investments. And lastly, that there are fewer standards that are specific to the agriculture and forestry sector related to investing and a lack of harmonization among those standards, although we do see that changing. Next slide, please. So the ASEAN guidelines came in to address some of these challenges and specifically to, were written in 2017 to attract socially, economically, and environmentally sustainable investments by becoming a guidance framework both for policymakers and investors to understand what and how to invest to reach these broader sustainable development goals, but also see financial returns. Next slide, please. The, the ASEAN guidelines cover 10 social, environmental, economic, and government governance impact areas. 
And of course, today our discussion is focused on climate smart agricultural solutions, including how climate smart investments can mitigate risks and open new opportunities for agribusinesses and their partners. So you can see here that guideline seven is explicitly focused on climate change mitigation, but you'll hear from the other speakers today about how their climate smart practices are directly linked to social and financial outcomes, both for the investor as well as for farmers and surrounding communities. Next slide, please. There are several reasons why we see that the ASEAN RAI guidelines are particularly valuable to our partners. One is, of course, that they're aligned with existing SDG targets applicable to any value chain in food, agriculture, or forestry. They're adapted for multiple international standards to fit the ASEAN context. And then lastly, and perhaps most importantly, these guidelines were written originally for policymakers and were adopted by the 10 ASEAN ministers of agriculture and forestry in 2018. So although the guidelines themselves are a set of voluntary uh, frameworks, they will eventually be integrated into national policy. Next slide, please. And who would be the target audience? Of course, ASEAN member states and policymakers themselves. At VG, you could just click through these for me, but as well as agribusiness investors, communities, SMEs, and agri cooperatives, civil society players, and even financial institutions. Next slide, please. I wanted to specifically talk with all of you today about how private sector can leverage these guidelines. And again, coming back to the, the climate smart practices aspect, how investors can leverage these guidelines to better understand what those practices might look like and how they can benefit from these kinds of practices by following a set of regional guidelines. So the first reason that we've heard from our partners in the region is, of course, to prepare for this changing policy landscape that is increasingly going to require a focus on climate, mit climate change mitigation and adaptation and integrating these kinds of climate smart practices. And Vijay, again, you could just click through these if you don't mind, thank you. Um, the second is of course to capture a $205 billion opportunity that's been identified by Bain Company in the region. This $205 billion opportunity exists per year all the way to 2030 for investors that are looking to increasingly use more sustainable practices in their investments into agriculture and food. There are opportunities to unlock sustainable financing, such as sustainability-linked loans or impact investments. It's a great way to communicate your commitments to climate change mitigation. It plays a strong role in building back better from COVID-19 and being able to actually use these practices to benefit communities. And then lastly, that there's an opportunity to learn from a network which is supported both by GrowAsia as a multi-stakeholder platform, PPSA in the Philippines, and many other players, including Green Invest Asia, who you'll hear from next. Next slide, please. I want to dive in very briefly into guideline seven, which is very much focused on climate smart practices that investors can use when they're designing and then implementing these supply chain investments. So guideline seven specifically talks about how policymakers or ASEAN member states should be developing, testing and scaling climate adaptation measures themselves, promoting risk products that benefit smallholders, respecting indigenous and traditional knowledge linked to climate adaptation, and then addressing marginalized groups greater vulnerability in the face of climate change. 
VJ Next click. And the guidelines also specifically give ASEAN member states three key ways that they can implement these broad ideals into policies, again, to better inform private sector investors that are looking to use these practices during their own investments. Next slide, please. The ASEAN guidelines further go into a set of suggestions for investors, whether agribusinesses or financial investors themselves. And note that the private sector can play a strong role in improving resilience, mitigation, and adaptation to climate change by supporting research or by participating in uh, private-public partnerships, using their business network to scale up and test best practices, through field staff and extension services, supporting community adoption of climate smart practices, and actually avoiding business practices that exacerbate the effects of climate change. We also know that there's a specific role for financial sector actors who might be on the line, BJ Next Click, which is to help develop climate insurance and other financial products for smallholders. So these are just some suggestions embedded into the ASEAN guidelines, and I'm happy to answer any questions about the details later on. But I'll just close by sharing, next slide please, that Grow Asia and our partners will be leading a 10-year action plan that has four key pillars to help support both policymakers and private investors to take up all 10 of these guidelines that comprise the ASEAN RAI. So the first pillar is focused on direct support for national legal and policy services. The second is that we will be setting up a learning and accreditation program to train experts in ASEAN to become aware of what best practices look like for responsible investing in the region and then be able to actually serve as consultants or guides for future investments. Third is to continue to host regional and national capacity building events, which we're already actively doing. And then last, focus very much on engaging investors um, by aligning tools that already exist to the ASEAN context and making them more available to partners that are interested in investing more responsibly and highlighting best practice and possibly less good practice case studies, which we will be publishing later this year about how many investors across the region, some of whom you hear from later today are already implementing many, if not all of the 10 areas of importance in the ASEAN ARIA guidelines. Last slide, please. I'll just wrap up by sharing with you that in each of these four key pillar areas, Grow Asia welcome any of you to engage with us and with the PPSA and all the other stakeholders that we work with in the region. Um, we are still very happy to include investors in our case study series. We'll be opening the learning and accreditation program in 2022. We'll be inviting anyone who's interested to our regional events where we'll share learnings and best practices. And then of course, ASEAN member states can receive the technical assistance they need to embed these guidelines into national policy. And to further engage with us, next slide please, we welcome you to visit the website for the ASEAN RAI guidelines, which is managed by multiple partners. You can get in touch directly with myself or my colleagues at PPSA, and we look forward to hearing you. Again, thank you so much for the opportunity to share, and I'll very happily pass it to Christy to give a deeper dive into the Climate Smart Solutions and share. Thank you, BJ. All right. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Erin, uh, for sharing with us some opportunities 
um, especially for the private sector in uh, you know pursuing climate smart interventions and of course for briefly uh, discussing or introducing with our uh, participants the ASEAN RAI which companies, uh, investors and organizations here uh, can also adopt in their um, business operations or investments. So thank you so much for that. Um, on to our uh, second presenter, we are glad to have here uh, Christy Owen. Uh, Christy serves as the Chief of Party for USAID Green Invest Asia and Thailand Country Director for the Global NGO Pact Incorporated. She oversees a team mobilizing private investment into low-emission agriculture and forestry practices across Southeast Asia. She has spent nearly 20 years of designing and implementing environmental management, biodiversity, uh, con conservation, and climate change projects in the Philippines, Venezuela, El Salvador, Equatorial Guinea, and the Lower Mekong region. With this, over to you, Christy. Great, thank you so much, Vijay. Um, good afternoon, Magadang Hapon Sasahat. I used to live in the Philippines. It is a place close to my heart, and uh, I regret not being able to join uh, you all in person today. Um, but it still remains a, a, a big pleasure to be here and explore the topic of climate smart agriculture um, at this event organized um, by the Philippines Partnership for Sustainable Agriculture. And I do want to thank uh, the organizers for, uh, for the invitation to be here. Um, so as was noted in the introduction, my name is Christy Owen. I currently serve as the Chief of Party for USAID Green Invest Asia, uh, based in Bangkok, Thailand. Uh, I'm going to say a few words about USA Green Invest Asia, uh, and then a couple of thoughts around trends that we are seeing in the region uh, related to ag climate smart agriculture and low carbon production um, of key commodities. And then finally, a couple of examples of the types of activities we have been supporting here uh, in the Philippines, or I should say there in the Philippines. Um, I think overall my remarks might be a bit brief, but I certainly welcome questions um, and uh, questions and, and the Q&A period. So if I could get to the next slide, please. So uh, just a, again, a quick overview. USA Green Invest Asia is a six-year uh, initiative funded out of USAID's regional mission in Bangkok. Uh, we work specifically with investors, banks, impact funds, equity managers, and companies, uh, both multinationals and SMEs to increase the amount of private sector financing for business models that lead to a reduction of greenhouse gas emissions at the land use level. And why do we do this? Erin uh, alluded to some of the reasons in her presentations, um, but just to reinforce this, because land use change accounts for about 40% of greenhouse gas emissions in this region, um, and because ag and forestry companies uh, comprise a large percentage of GDP for the region, as well as providing essential commodities for global supply chains. So unlike other regions, uh, there's a specific need uh, and opportunity here uh, in Southeast Asia, in the Philippines, including the Philippines, um, to really make a difference in terms of uh, the role of ag and forestry uh, on uh, and, and climate change. So we have to date screened about 175 opportunities um, and identified 30 for further technical support. Uh, our support comes in the form of technical assistance for both investors in their due diligence process, as well as for companies to help them become investment ready. Uh, we focus on investment opportunities in Cambodia, Vietnam, Philippines, Indonesia, Laos, PDR, and Thailand. 
with a very targeted interest in commodities that are most closely linked to deforestation and land degradation uh, in the region. So commodities like coconuts, rubber, coffee, and cacao. Our goal is to mobilize $400 million uh, for climate smart agriculture and forestry through leveraging our technical assistance as co-investment into opportunities that transform business as usual. As a result, we aim to reduce, avoid, or sequester 25 million metric tons of uh, CO2 equivalent. And we actually believe, we do this because we believe there is a clear link uh, with how money is invested and mitigating the impacts of climate change. So next slide, please. So I wanted to um, kind of reflect back, use this as an opportunity to reflect back a little bit on what we have um, seen um, and uh, what we have supported uh, over the last five years, uh, working exclusively with the private sector. Um, my team and I have seen some clear trends that have emerged, uh, which are driving demand for the services that we offer. Uh, and these are all linked to uh, the topic at hand today, climate smart ag um, and, and forestry, but mostly climate smart ag. Um, and I think I can say overall, it's very fair uh, to say that all roads are leading to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, first, uh, there is a growing number of corporate climate commitments, right? These net zero targets. Uh, 115 businesses have accepted the climate pledge to be net zero carbon by 2040. And according to the International Shareholder Services, just over a third of the 500 companies in the US is United States S&P 500 stock index have set ambitious climate targets. Uh, this commitment is requiring companies to know their carbon footprint, not just for their scope one and two emissions, but also their scope three, which gets all the way to the farm level. So as we like to say, you cannot manage what you do not measure. And linked to this uh, measurement is setting targets. So we increasingly see more, in, uh, more interest and uh, drive towards the science-based target initiative, the SBTI. Uh, which is widely regarded as best practice uh, for corporate climate action, uh, with over a thousand companies having submitted their targets uh, and the list is growing. So about a third of the companies that have joined this initiative are based in Asia, according to EcoBusiness. And the companies are increasingly see their targets as a way to future-proof their growth, save money, build resilience against regulation, boost investor confidence, spur innovation, and competitiveness while also demonstrating climate commitments and decreasing reputation risks to increasingly conscious consumers and shareholders. But to reach these emission reduction targets, we see that companies and investors are looking to nature-based solutions and regenerative agriculture. So these are trending themes uh, in that kind of climate smart ag space that require understanding elements, including soil carbon pools and mitigation potential. So we have found through our work uh, in supporting companies, um, not just in the Philippines, but also in, and specifically in Vietnam and Thailand and Indonesia, that there are significant emissions reductions uh, that can be made at the land use level. So through better soil management, fertilizer reduction, diversified crops, agroforestry, uh, conservation, restoration set-asides. And these are all kind of fall within that realm of what we consider climate smart ag. Um, there's just a little bit of a twist, the, the, some of the lingo has started to shift into this nature-based solutions and regenerative agriculture, um, principally among investors, but also among some companies as well. Um, so 
just getting back to that, companies are starting to embrace these measures uh, as not only a way to save costs, but also as a way to improve their sustainability and the quality of their product. And I would say that investors are looking at nature-based solutions and regenerative agriculture as impact investing models, um, looking beyond the social benefits for their dollars. So, uh, for example, earlier this year through USAID Green Invest Asia, we co-hosted an event on regenerative agriculture uh, with the GIN network, a regional investor network, specifically because their investors wanted to know more about the impact potential uh, for regenerative ag. So, it can take time though to see these kind of carbon benefits and, and the overall benefits um, from regenerative agriculture, um, from climate smart ag, uh, from changes in production practice. Uh, so we also have seen an increasing demand for carbon credits and insetting strategies, um, which are creating openings for high quality carbon project development, origination and implementation. So whereas in years past, uh, there was a lot of skepticism and, and risk involved with the carbon market, um, some of which definitely still exists and continues, but we do see that the carbon market has expanded more than five-fold since 2017 um, and has reached a record high of $272 billion in 2020. Um, the market for carbon offsets is expected to become a lot bigger as companies and countries set ambitious goals for net zero carbon emissions. And the Philippines recently increased its target to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 75% by 2030 uh, under its commitment to the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, um, which is up from a target of 70% set four years ago. So there's some, uh, this kind of fits with the overall global trends that we're seeing. Uh, and lastly, uh, the trend that we're seeing is new sustainable sourcing requirements of these, particularly these major food and ag companies, um, as well as governments as part of, the free, as part of free trade agreements. Um, and this really links to the growing importance of sustainability standards uh, international trade agreements, free trade agreements, especially for the food sector. Um, what we see is that companies in an effort to meet their emissions reduction targets are again, looking all the way down their supply chain and putting requirements um, and standards on their suppliers uh, at the farm level, uh, at the land use level. And so even if your business is not currently in a multinational supply chain, shifting practices now uh, can position for future growth and create new opportunities for suppliers as buyers want increasingly want low carbon commodities uh, to meet their requirements and their corporate commitments. So the next slide, please. Uh, this is my last slide. Uh, there are two companies, I just wanted to highlight here two examples of companies in the Philippines um, that are doing uh, kind of part of these trends that we're seeing um, and that we're also quite pleased to be supporting. Uh, the first is Lionheart Farms, uh, which I know you'll be hearing from later, so I, I won't steal their thunder. Uh, but um, for Lionheart, sustainable coconut production is central to their business model. So as a company, they have committed to incorporating nature-based solutions and regenerative agriculture into their long-term growth strategies. Um, but to help finance their business plan, we have supported their effort uh, in partnership with Earthwake out of Singapore uh, to issue Asia's first, uh, what we believe is Asia's first agricultural, agricultural certified climate bond. Um, and this is expected to raise uh, several million dollars uh, needed to improve the productivity of Lionheart's plantations and lead to an avoidance and sequestration of carbon emissions. I'm sure that Anders will speak more about that. 
Um, and then the other example, just to highlight in a different commodity, uh, is Kenamer Foods International, uh, which is a supplier of uh, cacao uh, and operations in Mindanao. And their model, they work with several multinationals, uh, but also work with local farmers um, doing some very intensive uh, capacity training and uh, certification standard kind of bench uh, setting uh, to, exactly to ensure that their farmers uh, meet these standards set by uh, their multinational buyers. Um, but their current business model is expanding. Um, they see these trends and they are working to include the integration of carbon finance. Um, so as more multinational companies and other investors are seeking to offset their own carbon emissions, uh, improve production practices and models that include restoration and set-asides, uh, we find can be converted for carbon credits to be traded and sold on the voluntary carbon market, uh, which is where uh, Kenamer Foods International is headed. So that will be something very interesting to watch uh, for the Philippines. So there's a next slide, and it is my last slide. Um, just my closer, I promise to keep my remarks short. I hope they've been able to give you a bit of a glimpse of where we see Climate Smart Ag uh, headed, uh, moving down these low carbon pathways uh, that we um, see increasingly as uh, kind of a concerted uh, uh, movement um, across here, here in Asia. Um, and as you think about uh, climate smart agriculture, uh, nature-based solutions, uh, there are, these are a number of trends that are encouraging companies uh, to invest and change their model uh, for one that is more likely to be climate resilient uh, and therefore provide longer term gains in terms of both dollars and in our environment. So I wanna thank you all for your attention and I certainly look forward to more questions. Thank you, Vijay. All right. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Christy, for uh, for that presentation, and of course for also sharing uh, the opportunities for companies and organizations, uh, especially uh, provided by the USAID Green Invest Asia, uh, in pursuing you know climate smart, low carbon um, interventions. All right. Um, at this point of the program, um, we were. We are going to actually uh, sort of interview or um, ask some questions to Erin and Christy to, uh, you know, uh, deep dive into the practical ways in um, doing climate smart agriculture. And of course, we'll be entertaining uh, some questions uh, if there are uh, from the Q&A box or chat box from our um, participants today. So, all right. Um, well, Erin and uh, Christy, thank you so much again for that presentation. No? So, we are, well, we are currently uh, experiencing the effects of the pandemic uh, in one way or another, depends, uh, depending on, you know, wherever country you are in. And, and of course, the, pand the pandemic has revealed some uh, challenges and opportunities for all of us especially for both the agriculture and environment sectors. So my question is, um, what do you think are some of the uh, opportunities provided by the pandemic that you know, could support companies and organizations to transition or to pursue climate smart agriculture? Do you want to go first? Erin? I was going to okay. suggest Christy take this one first. Well, I mean, I can start. I think it's um, you know tricky. I mean, it's been such a hard um, couple of years for for everyone. Um, what we certainly see, and I think this has been echoed. You know, one lesson is just the fragility of of global supply chains. 
um, you start to have these disruptions that create a ripple effect. Um, and certainly here in Asia, where you have, um, you know, what is it, 90% of coconuts come from Asia, uh, you know, large percentages, 50% or more for coffee. Um, and so this has an impact on, um, on uh, beyond these, beyond Asia. And so I think this has given a bit of an opportunity then for domestic markets, as well as more regional um, growth within kind of a more of a regional solidification, consolidation of, of supplying and suppliers and buyers. Um, I think that's part of it. Um, but I think it's also provided um, a reminder of the importance of the environment um, and the importance of kind of that balance, maintaining that balance um, between our natural systems and uh, our exploitation of those systems um, and how, you know, we do have a role to play um, and could do better, uh, frankly. And then that's something like climate smart ag practices where we are being uh, more considered in how we apply chemicals or how we use water or how we uh, use the land um, does have the potential um, that if not done correctly, to be enormously costly economically. So. Christy, I absolutely agree with what you've just shared. And I would only add um, from the policy lens that we are seeing a really important shift uh, directed both at the national and regional level, where we see things like the ASEAN Comprehensive Recovery Framework coming out and having an incredibly strong focus on climate change mitigation and adaptation practices and really encouraging each ASEAN member state to integrate a lot of the learnings that have already come out of a series of guidelines and actions that were put in place over the last five to 10 years, but to say, we need to jumpstart this because in fact, mitigating these impacts of climate change is essential to the region's recovery and building back better from the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's actually some of those decisions at the policy level have been incredibly exciting for us to see. Um, the ASEAN guidelines of promoting responsible investment are particularly called out as one of those strategies, um, but there's also a set of ASEAN guidelines for climate smart agriculture, which is getting increasing interest as a result of the pandemic. So I hope that this is a trend that we continue to see for the policy arena. Yeah, uh, thank you so much. And I agree uh, that, uh, you know, building back better is really, you know, what we are needing, especially that uh, really the pandemic has, uh, you know, impacted uh, the whole uh, ecosystem, the whole economy and all the sectors. All right. So this another question uh, actually talks about how we could do better for the uh, environment. Well, just to share, I am part of the 2021 cohort of the ASEAN Climate Leadership Program of the organized by the GIZ. CRCA and the ASEAN Climate Resilience Network. Uh, I think some of my classmates and some facilitators are here. And during some of the some of the uh, context setting presentations, the data revealed that the damages have been done by different sectors to the environment. It's really, you know, really worse or big. And an IISD publication or the International Institute for Sustainable Development also revealed that agriculture is one if not you know the biggest polluter of the of the environment so my question is uh, which is actually connected to what uh, Digi here uh, asked in the in the chat box so given the gravity of these damages are there really ways to undo this harm in the context of uh, you know of today's topic and of course how do we you know uh, balance 
really balance sustainability and uh, productivity. I can just kick off with a few comments, but also looking at the participant list, I know that there are many experts on the line who uh, know a lot more about this than I do. So the only thing that I want to add actually from this kind of multi-stakeholder platform um, perspective is that we are seeing a trend, especially among uh, financial investors to really encourage the shift toward, as Christy pointed out, nature-based solutions and regenerative agricultural practices, which actually do sequest carbon back into the soil. And so it's some of these examples of practices that are being driven by capital I think that actually does help us, will help us see a greater shift back toward um, practices, which in many cases are, are indigenous practices that were used by, by communities long ago. So moving back towards some of those ways in which we can actually capture some of that carbon um, and then also use opportunities like what Singapore's recent um, Climate Impact X platform is aiming to do, which is to reinvest into best-in-class nature-based solutions um, and really drive that across the region. So I'm excited to see, again, this, this shift from investors to push us in this direction. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I would agree that there's probably people uh, in the audience who have much more experience on this than I do, and I just look at it from a kind of regional lens and the trends that I see. And and certainly, you know, even here in Thailand, early on, after a few months of lockdown, uh, there are reports of protected areas and animal species that were, you know, making their way back into areas that were previously uh, devoid of certain species. And I think that's the kind of uh, thinking and that kind of drives the optimism that if you do, if we do shift how we grow our food, um, how we manage our forest, it is possible to pull back some of the damages damage that has been done uh, to our environment, but it, it requires, you know, not just, you know, a company or a government or an NGO, it requires a real partnership, and it certainly requires financing, and this is where the investors play a really key role uh, to shifting some of their criteria um, and their metrics um, and starting to better incentivize uh, a shift in these practices, um, because we can see um, that it is possible um, to recover, uh, it just uh, requires a, a consolidated uh, effort among multiple multiple partners. Okay, uh, thank you so much uh, for that uh, responses. Uh, so uh, there's a question by uh, Ricardo Orge, um, and uh, he would like to know if there is a standard way of evaluating a practice or business to consider it low carbon. There's a, well, there's a few Standard. tools out there. Um, one of the tools that we've used uh, for a couple of companies as well as investors is the Cool Farm tool. Um, it's not, uh, there are gaps to it, um, but there's also, it kind of depends to be honest, uh, what you want to, you know, how deep you want to go <laughs> in your measurement. I mean, what's the purpose for measuring, right? I mean, I think part of the purpose of measuring is uh, to identify uh, recommendations for changes in practices. But there's also specific tools for measuring if you want to say enter the carbon market, and so it, a lot of it will depend on what what you what's the purpose of why you want to measure. 
And just okay. to add on um, that, again, as a multi-stakeholder platform, there are many NGOs and organizations, including Green Invest Asia that Croatia um, talks to and will actually often recommend to our partners. So we have a, a long list of consultants and firms that are very much experts in doing these evaluations and happy to connect anyone who might be looking for some suggestions to a long, a long list. All right, thank you so much. And uh, we actually have uh, two minutes uh, to the question and answer, but I would also like to add this another question. Well, uh, the call, calls for inclusivity are, you know, gaining traction, especially, you know, companies and organizations are recognizing that equality and equity can really, you know, help us uh, achieve our goals. And uh, inclusivity should also be considered when pushing for climate smart uh, interventions. So how can companies and organizations integrate, you know, gender inclusive approaches in climate smart agriculture? Or are there any best practices that you can share? So again, I, I'd actually like to move quickly to the, the presentations from those that are doing it on the ground, but um, Croatia is doing a series of 14 case studies right now on responsible uh, investment practices that agribusinesses use. And I would say that many of the agribusinesses have shared with us that their gender inclusive practices, which might look like having specific focus groups to engage women farmers and understanding what their particular challenges might be, or setting up specific trainings that are geared towards women's needs around schedule or um, other kind of barriers to that training can have a very positive impact on the kinds of practices that then those farmers and women are actually using in the field. And they will take up more of those climate smart practices. So it's it's a trend that, that we're certainly hearing from these case studies. And as I said, we'd love to hear more from the speakers after this on it. Yeah, I don't have much to add from, from Aaron's. Um, you know, we've looked at it, we, we acknowledge that there is a, certainly a, um, a gender lens and an inclusivity lens to be that climate change affects people very differently and, and their contributions to addressing it um, are therefore linked to how it impacts them or how it kind of affects their day-to-day uh, -day and their capacity to contribute. Um, I, there is um, a study on the USA Green Invest Asia website, something we did very early on looking at women in the coffee uh, supply chain in Asia. And we actually, I believe, I uh, don't think it, we looked at Vietnam, Indonesia, and um, Cambodia. I don't. I mean, we looked at the Philippines as well, and had some early work uh, around gender and coffee in the Philippines. Um, and those those resources are on our website for folks who are interested. All right. Uh, well, thank you so much again, Erin uh, and Christy, for responding to the questions. And I think there are still a questions part in the Q and A and chat box, and I hope you uh, can answer uh, them. And of course, I hope our participants get one or two ideas from you, especially on integrating inclusion, for example, in their strategies. And um, in the interest of time, we are going to move on to the next part of the session. Thank you so much again, Erin and Christine. Thank you. Thank you, BJ. Sorry. Wait, I'll just share my screen again. Share. Oops. All right, so in the next part of this session, we invited representatives of uh, companies who are doing climate smart agriculture interventions and sustainability initiatives and to share with us uh, their practices, successes, and their challenges, of course. But for the next part, I am giving the, the mic to uh, Pranav Setaput.
Electra, who leads the Partnerships and Communications of Grow Asia. Over to you, Pranav. Thank you, Vijay. So the two speakers that we have today for you come from Pilmico and from Lion Tech, uh, sorry, Lionheart Agritech. The first speaker is uh, Katrina Mercado. She's the Corporate Social Responsibility Supervisor of Pilmico Foods Corporation based in Ilagan City. CAP um, oversees the implementation, implementation of Project Silk, which is an inclusive and sustainable sourcing of corn project that recently won the inaugural uh, Europa Sustainability Awards 2021 by the ECCP, so the European Chamber of Commerce in the Philippines. And this is the project that's going to be at the heart of her presentation today. Cat uh, has more than seven years of experience, both in corporate social responsibility as well as in child rights protection. Cat earned her social work degree from Mindanao State University in Marawi and her Master of Teaching in Social Work from the Catholic University of America in Washington, DC. And with that, uh, Kat, over to you. You have about seven minutes. I hope, I apologize in advance. If you do run over, I will uh, butt in and remind you, but you have seven minutes. Thank you, Kat. Okay, thank you, Prana. BJ, um, next slide, please. Okay, and um, on to the next slide, please. Thank you. Okay, so, um. Brief introduction of our company. So Filmico Foods Corporation is the integrated agribusiness and food company of Avoidance Equity Ventures. We are comprised of four divisions, flour, feeds and animal health, farms, and trading. We are well positioned at the beginning of the value chain. We operate in the Philippines nationwide and have a growing international presence uh, in the Asia Pacific region through Goldcoin. Um, true to our brand promise of being partners for growth, we advance our business and communities by providing business solutions and building partnerships for growth. Um, next, on to the next slide, please, PJ. Thank you. So um, briefly, let me share this with you. Um, these are one of the many initiatives you have in our plans. With Pilmico centered on business of agriculture and feed production, it's no secret that our processes require serious amounts of energy, fuel, and water. However, through efforts like this, um, it shows that practical solutions can be found embedded within our business process if we act with a purpose. Next slide, please. So first, um, let me share with you the rice, rice husk solution, uh, rice husk fired boiler. So fuel and energy are key factors of Pilmico's feed production process. Great amounts of heat and steam are required to create our high quality products. In order to achieve this, Pilmico used to go through several liters of bunker fuel, a non-renewable non fuel resource for production. And in our effort to reduce our consumption of non-renewable uh, fuel, Pilmico began using rice husks, a byproduct of rice meals from rice production as an alternative to bunker fuel. Also anchored on the Avoidance uh, Avoidis Group program's race to reduce, Filmico has seen an avenue to lessen costs uh, as well as help the company be friendlier to the environment. Our production team um, has seen significant improvement as it cut our fuel use by almost uh, 50%. Okay, next slide, please. Thank you. Um, Vijay. Okay, um, and next we have the biogas system for our farm operations. Um, in, to, in 2008, Filmico's uh, swine facility in Tarlac also constructed and introduced a biogas system that converts um, hogs waste into fuel for generators, uh, making our farms partially self-sufficient for its um, electricity requirement. Um, it treats its own wastewater and slurry in a dedicated anaerobic digester. 
it's, it's in a lagoon. And then it uses the biogas produced by the process to generate electricity for its on-site use. Um, it shows how um, Filmico continually looks for innovative ways to operate the business uh, for the better. Also briefly, we have, um, next please, um, the installation of our solar panels in combating harmful um, emissions and um, also um, um, reducing, uh, no, uh, reducing non-renewable energies. And then um, next slide, please. Okay, um, uh, this one um, located in Central Mindanao University, which is in Bukidnon, Mindanao. Um, the Central Mindanao University is a state university with quadrate functions. Um, it is to instruct, to research, ex um, extension, and production. So the facility which we put up together with the Boitis Foundation is dubbed as the CMU AgriHub. It houses four research um, research and development centers, uh, fully equipped with the latest tools and technologies on swine genetics, animal nutrition, artificial insemination, and farm management. Uh, so bringing in uh, mutual benefits for both our students, farmers, while boosting um, rural development. And uh, we always decide to constantly work uh, with um, with everyone no, in co-creating um, safe, empowered, and sustainable communities. Okay, so let, uh, let's um, now deep dive into the Project Silk uh, Yellow Corn Inclusive Program. Okay, so um, we started this project last 2017. Together with Aboitis Foundation, our corporate foundation, we crafted an agribusiness shared value program, which directly sources yellow corn from local farmers or local FCAs, farmer cooperatives and associations. So the project aimed to develop community enterprises into efficient, profitable, and growing businesses that help improve incomes of its uh, members and workers by providing end-to-end -end support from production, harvesting, processing, and all the way to the marketing. So um, Pilmico, Abaitis Foundation, the Department of Agriculture, um, Go Negocio, are among, the, uh, among others are in, act as enablers where we ensure a holistic intervention is provided um, to the organizations which we are partnering with. Uh, so this includes um, organizational strengthening, enhancing the business, and making resilient organizations. And we also have a big brother, small brother um, strategy in place, where our big brother cooperatives allow, uh, allows the operation of smallholder farmers. And then the big brother consolidates produce from smallholder farmers, removing logistical costs, in effect, um, allowing smallholder small holder, uh, small holder farmers to save um, costs on fuel, manpower, among others, as they build up themselves, eventually to becoming um, the big brother that they have uh, partnered with. And then the project also um, provides capability or empowerment, technical livelihood and technology trainings and technology introductions even. And then we um, it also provides access to financial assistance to um, help improve the production and um, post-production um, operations of the uh, organizations which we are partnering with. And then we also have asset donations and donation of supplementary source of income to augment um, the incomes of the organization. And then um, benchmarking visits, very important, um, facilitation of learning sessions and knowledge sharing with other uh, uh, big organizations or um, uh, big brother cooperatives and associations present in the locality. And then most importantly, registration of the business in compliance to the government substantiation requirements. Um, compliance to this creates other opportunities for the organization to also sell to other feed dealers and other corn buyers. So the company has um, been steadfastly initiating programs that serve to advance the business where we do business. Through our project Silk, we have been able to sustainably and holistically uplift our adopted um, communities. No? And more importantly, the success of this program serves as a model that 
can be on, emulated and scaled across the country to reach and better the circumstance, the circumstance of uh, even more communities. And then um, um, briefly, lang, um, BJ, on to the next slide. Um, these are the series of trainings that we had conducted with, um, with our uh, partner organizations. No? Uh, training on resiliency, um, training on organizational development, um, training on um, other additional sources of income. And uh, being a partner for growth for its community, uh, the, co the company continues to improve on its alignment with the UN Sustainable Development Goals, more specifically the SDG tools on zero hunger uh, by contributing to the country's um, food security while strengthening its environmental, social governance and performance um, and drive positive change. And um, next slide, please. Uh, just recently, um, as um, Pranav has shared, no, we bagged the 2021 Europa Awards for Sustainable Food and Nutrition for our um, Yellow Corn Sourcing, the Project Silk. Um, yes, uh, this is organized by the European Chamber of Commerce uh, in the Philippines, ECCP, and uh, it seeks to promote and recognize companies with um, ex exceptional performance and contributions in promoting sustainability and in keeping with global standards and the Philippine Development Plan. And um, um, also just recently, um, next slide please, um, the Project Silk um, is set to expand to more local corn consumers to a greater number of farmer cooperatives and associations as it works with fellow stakeholders in the government, um, Filipinas Contra Goto. This is a government initiative that increasing smallholder uh, small, uh, farmer uh, productivity income. Um, this is a collective effort of the government, NGOs, the academic and private sector to address um, the root of the nation's um, concern on hunger, striving to improve um, food production and distribution to repurpose food surplus, to curb malnutrition, and to reduce hunger incidences um, caused by um, crisis. I have seen a um, few of my colleagues from the Filipinas Contra Gustum present in this um, learning session. No? So hi, guys. And then... Um, Onto the next slide, please, Vijay. I'm, I'm nearing up. This is actually my um, last slide. No, at the heart of everything we do, we always um, be our um, we always be in our uh, deep sense of responsibility. Um, we always are relentlessly um, seeking ways to integrate economic growth with um, societal good to create meaningful progress that drives um, change for the better world, creating um, value led by values, um, delivering profits um, guided by purpose. And then um, um, we continually look forward in um, improving how we operate our business and relate with our partners and then finding solutions that create an impact, not just within the company, but also to the community and environment as well. So um, Vij yeah, Vijay, I think that's that for Pilmiko. Thank you very much. Um, back to you for now. Thank you so much, Kat. And thank you for sticking to time. That was very efficient and uh, very well laid out. I have quite a few questions for you, but we'll move on to Lionheart first, and then we'll consolidate all the questions and we'll ask them to the both of you at the same time, just so you can volley off of each other as well. Um, with that, moving on to the second speaker, we have Anders Hagen, who is the co-founder and director of Lionheart Agrotech, uh, which is a company whose climate smart agriculture initiatives he'll be sharing with us today. Uh, so Anders, actually worked in investment banking for 25 years across the pond in Hong Kong. Uh, and his latest position being the partner and CEO of a for Asia for BTG Factual, uh, a position he actually resigned from in 2013 to focus on building sustainable food and biofood projects 
uh, in a personal capacity. So Anders has invested in several greenfield projects ranging from biomass energy to sustainable shrimp production and has worked closely with academia and practitioners globally to establish a model for enhancing productivity of energy and food farming. Uh, so with that, Anders, I'll hand over to you. Uh, like with Kat, seven minutes and apologies in advance if I give you a little time check. Uh, Pranav, you're going to have to allow me to share screen because um, I think Ami is now co-host. Sure, no worries. Vijay, could you help out with that, please? Anders, uh, can you try? Yeah, I think we're good now. Sure. Great. I'll give you an extra minute, don't worry. <laughs> Generosity, we like it. Okay, so... Uh, segueing straight from that bio into uh, into Lionheart. So uh, we, we formed Lionheart in 2015, and that was, uh, I would almost say it was site-specific. Uh, if you look at this map, we were invited by a PCA, Philippine Coconut Authority, and the local government to develop uh, an, an ancestral land area in the Rizal municipality of South Palawan. Um, it, it's, it's a good area to do farming. Uh, it's very safe. There's no typhoon risk. There's lots of water. But the infrastructure frankly sucked. So we, we had practically no cemented roads and no uh, bridges when we started. But that's all been, been fixed now and we're now six years into the project. I wanna share with you the engine rule. Okay, so, so why do I wanna be a coconut farmer if I was an investment banker? Isn't that a step down? Uh, and it, it isn't, it doesn't have to be. If you think about calories produced per hectare, okay? The traditional farmer in the Philippines, Indonesia, everywhere else, really, he's got 100 trees, they're getting old, uh, he himself is getting old, uh, but he produces enough calories. So calories is a good common denominator. He produces enough calories to feed about eight or 10 people, that's 5,000 kcals per year per hectare. So the, the food productivity per hectare in traditional coconut is about eight to 10 people. Now, so our plan was to plant a high yielding variety, which is hybrids. Typically that triples the yield per tree. Uh, and, and we're certainly seeing that. Uh, so that already helps, right? That's a good step up. Now we're feeding you know, 25, 30 people per hectare. Um, if we irrigate, that's expensive. So you need patient capital to put irrigation in. It's very expensive. But if you do, you use your land better because there's plenty of sunlight, plenty of CO2, and there's frankly lots of sun that hits the ground in a traditional coconut farm. So why not put more trees there? And the answer is because there's not enough water. So if you have access to irrigation, which we do, we have a huge catchment area behind the farm, then you should put irrigation. And that means you can put four times more trees per hectare. You see, there's no black magic here, right? This is, this is very simple step-by-step -step increasing the productivity on, on a coconut farm. But the big leap, of course, if it is if you harvest the, uh, the sap from the coconut flower rather than letting the coconut develop. That sounds a bit silly, but in, in reality, I've got this little model here of a coconut tree. Um, about half of the photosynthetic sugars that are developed in the tree go into the bunch of coconuts. Now you can't see it here. Um, three quarters of that is essentially wasted. In, in husk and stem and shell and these things that have no food and beverage value, right? Um, if you harvest that sap before it turns into the coconut, you quadruple the number of calories that you can harvest and sell into the food and beverage industry, okay? 
Again, I take no credit for a lot of these things. This is all developed by the giants of Fukuoka-san in Japan, by Dr. Cho in, in Korea. PCA has been very, very helpful. But we put all these things together and we have now 50 times higher productivity on a hectare of coconut. This is the engine room. This is, this is sort of the basic idea. Now, we integrate vertically uh, because if you look at the coconut industry, there's a lot of people who are very good at processing coconuts and there's a lot of small farmers, but it's very difficult to plan the, um, the uh, processing if you don't have exclusive access to raw materials. So we decided to put the two together. Um, we do that in, uh, by, by having a factory where we extract the sugar juice, like I say, concentrated and turn it into various uh, high value products. So you see some of them here, coconut vinegar, you're probably familiar with, this is our brand, coconut syrup. You're familiar with coconut flour water, it's something we've uh, developed, which is sugar-free coconut water. Uh, coconut aminos uh, is, is actually a fairly normal product, but it's not done in great volumes uh, pretty much anywhere in the world. Um, coconut sugar we're all familiar with, but uh, actually it's not terribly profitable because the Indonesian market manages to produce this much cheaper than, than we can do in the Philippines. Let's talk about this a little bit. Um, hang on, I see there's some problem with my background. There we go. Okay, um, SDG goals. Um, poverty, obviously a huge factor in this project. It's a very labor intensive project, okay? Harvesting the sugar juice from coconut trees is very labor intensive. When we came, the host community, the indigenous host community experienced a 65% poverty incidence. That is gone now. I, I don't even know what that number is anymore because everybody that wants a job now has a job. So that's number one. SGG two, I, I consider that in the context of how much food can we produce on a hectare because we're not going to get more land. They don't make it anymore. So our efficiency of land use is a very important factor in ending hunger. And you can see the numbers here. We collect enough calories on a hectare to feed 400 people. Even oil pump collects only 100 enough to feed 100 people. So pretty extreme numbers. Um, in terms of water use, we're very efficient as well. One kilo of, of cane sugar requires about 2,500 to 3,000 liters of water. We only need 200. And that's not because we're very smart. It's because we don't have to cut down the tree when we want to extract the sugar juice. In biomass, you have to cut down the, the, the cane, you have to cut down the cane and it has to grow again in the next growth season. So that means that's why there's such a big water and nutrient uh, requirement in cane sugar. Now, in terms of sustainable growth, this is really more of a sort of a multiplier effect that we've experienced in Rizal. So by essentially putting more money into people's pockets, We've seen this wonderful effect, uh, and, and I don't have time to show you, but I have a bunch of Facebook clippings where people have started little businesses, whether it's a you know birthday cake business or making balloons for birthdays or uh, makeup classes. And that, there's a whole bunch of these things that all of a sudden appeared once money got into circulation in the area. It also means that people with talent do not go to either Manila or abroad. So you, you, you kind of reverse the brain drain. So you have careers that you can actually fulfill in the environment. It's a fantastic thing, and I wish you could all come and see it one day. We'll talk about carbon in a minute, but that is a big factor of this project as well. Um, once we are fully planted, 
we should be able to remove and store enough CO2 to effectively offset all the emissions of the power sector in Palawan, which is about 80 megawatt. Now, let's talk about the, the climate smart farming. So, so uh, the areas that we developed were previously used for kying in, which you, you, you may know as slash and burn. So there's sort of rotational basis where the, the tribal community would, would burn down and then they would plant tubers or you know, sweet potato, cassava, that sort of thing. And then they would move on when the soil was, was depleted uh, and then come back about maybe three or four or five years later to do the same thing again. So, so that was obviously not a terribly productive use of that land. So the soil is okay, it's a bit acidic, but, but we, we can fix that. But, but the most important two factors of, of what we do in, in the farming is really, one is microbes, okay? And I'll show you on the next couple of slides how we develop our micro, microbial strategy. And then it's fungi. So microbes and fungi together constitute the microbiome. And the microbiome in the soil is exceptionally important. Uh, I'll show it one by one here. So what you're seeing here is, is Ivory, she's from Davao, PhD in microbiology. Uh, she's a bit overqualified to be a farm manager, but she is our farm manager. Uh, see, we, we find a healthy area in the farm and we bury these bamboo traps. They're filled with rice and that acts as a trap for the microbiome. So, so over a couple of days, it will invade these traps and we can extract samples of these microorganisms. We mix them with molasses, which makes them multiply. We ferment them in these clay pots. And this is the starter culture for all these crazy many uh, concoctions, right? You can see here, we've got uh, that pesticides. That's also based on the starter culture. We've got land prep. We've got vegetative state of the tree. We've got the, the later stage. And, and really paraphrasing Duterte here, spray, spray, spray is what we do. So we, we take these microbes and we populate the whole farm with these the, the beneficial microbiome. The second thing we do is to inoculate the spores, uh, the, the seedlings with spores from mycorrhizal fungi. So the mycorrhizal fungus, you can see the first sort of schematic here, what you do, what, what you achieve by inoculating them is effectively generating, it's, it's like hair extension. You get more access to nutrients and water in the soil because the the rhizome of, of the fungi will interact with the, the, the root systems. Uh, it's extremely effective. And I, I show you there, you, when you think about mushrooms, you only think about fruits, of course, but the reality is that in the soil, there's this massive network of, of mycelium. Um, you can buy this from, from UPLB Biotech, and I encourage you to do it. It's exceptionally cheap. In fact, Mel is on this uh, session. So uh, he can probably confirm if his contact number is right, I've got his email as well. So very, very cheap intervention. Everybody should be doing this, but you're not hearing this from your fertilizer salesperson because he's not interested in you learning this. The third intervention is to plant a cover crop. Again, everybody should be doing this. We are planting kutsu, uh, which is a wild peanut. And what the, the cover crop does is it, it harvests nitrogen from the atmosphere. As you know, 79% uh, of, the, of the air we breathe is nitrogen. So it's free and abundant and available everywhere. And if you plant the right leguminous cover crop, you can actually harvest that nitrogen and therefore you don't have to apply uh, chemical fertilizer. Of course, all of our fertilizers, we do apply fertilizers and we have to, 
but they are all organic and they're all coming from like animal manure and a lot of our microorganism concoctions, right? The other thing the cover crop does is to harvest rainwater because it prevents the evaporation of, of surface water. And now, carbon, two, two minutes, sorry. Yeah, this is my last area to, to talk a little bit about carbon. So we have studied and we are studying and, and some of my friends and, and, and affiliates are on this call as well. We are mapping what happens with a kilo of CO2 once it gets involved in photosynthesis with a coconut tree. And, and we are gonna be working a lot more on this. And this will allow us soon, I hope, to be able to collect carbon credits on, on coconut planting. It has to be new planting because there is the additionality effect of planting new trees. USAID has been very helpful with this as well. So together we're gonna to come out hopefully with a standard uh, toward the end of this year. So because of time, I won't talk about this in too much detail, but please do get in touch with me if you wanna talk about this. Now, finally on carbon, so, so we have removed and stored about 350,000 tons of carbon so far. You can see it's exponential because the trees grow older and therefore more productive and we add more trees. So that, that's kind of the capture and storage element. But I think what's really important, and I think what Christy touched upon as well, is the carbon footprint of our product. So this is your you know, scope three, if you will, downstream rather than upstream. So we know that when we uh, sell a liter of our sugar-free coconut water, and, and my example here is in, in Denmark, actually. So it's about as far away from Palawan as you can get. We know that we're removing and storing 322 grams of CO2 from the atmosphere. We know that we are using some CO2 in emissions in the processing. And then we know how much we're using in the transportation, which is a combination of trucking from Rizal to the port and then sailing to Europe and then trucking 700 kilometers to Copenhagen. Okay, that's a lot of CO2, but it's still net negative, And that's really, really important. Now, part of the green bond that, that we issue, one of the commitments we have here, for example, is to bring down our emission content uh, of that processing. So some of the funds, some of the proceeds will go toward implementing renewable energy that reduces the fossil fuel footprint. Finally, sorry, there was one more. And that's the economic fence effect. So when we look at these protected areas, and this is something we talk about all the time with you know, USAID, Green Invest Asia, everybody, all the big stakeholders. This area is a protected area in the Philippines. It has been uh, encroached upon by poor people. It's not their fault. They do logging and wildlife poaching. And they're in the pockets of some pretty influential families, but let's not go, in, go into that. But by effectively having a high labor component in the project, we've been able to draw people away from these activities and into a, a legal position within Lionheart. In fact, we have a, a chainsaw museum where they've hung up their chainsaws. So this is fantastic effect, protection of these biodiverse areas. Sorry, I went a little bit over. Oh, no worries, uh, Anders. I, I think a lot of really useful information there, lots of detail that I think, uh, I'm hoping at least that the audience will catch on to and ask more in-depth questions about. Uh, so Vijay, if you would mind putting Kat on spotlight as well, we'll move over to the Q&A portion of this. 
Um, so how it'll work for the audience is that we'll have a Q&A with the two panelists for about 10 to 15 minutes, and then we'll move on to the open forum where we'll actually be having, a, all of us will be having a conversation together about how we can help each other and move forward and promote the adoption of more climate smart agriculture practices within your own organizations uh, or operations. Uh, I'll start off actually with a very basic question, if you don't mind, Karen Anders, while we wait for more questions to come in from the audience. And that's really about what led you to adopt these climate smart agriculture practices. Uh, Anders, you've talked a little bit about the, the motivation from a, from a nutrition perspective and the impact for uh, uh, broader nutrition and hunger and food systems. But if you could elaborate a little bit more on say the enabling environment that allowed you to achieve this, things like funding, what's the business model? And because you're hedging essentially, or you're putting all your chips on the table because this is core to your business operations. And for Kat, when we go to you, if you would mind talking a little bit about uh, how this shift, right, happened within Bilmico and what motivated that, what enabled that, to the question that was asked in the chat box from um, Jasper as well, what how this is being financed, that would be really useful. So we could start with Anders and then go to Kat. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of, of, of aspects to that. I mean, from, from a sort of demand pool point of view, okay, you cannot go to market with a non-organic product. Those days are gone. So we are, we are forced by our clients into these, at least organic practices. Now, you know, maybe we go a little bit overboard on them, but there's a huge drive. And I mean, I think, and I believe this is irreversible. You get consumers in, in all the big countries. They all demand things that are traceable, things they feel good about. I don't think we can reverse that trend. So that's kind of baked into starting a project like this. Now, if you are, and I mean no disrespect, but if you're in oil palm where you're selling a commodity, that's different because that is a global commodity and there are some standards that you follow. Uh, but when we go into, because we're so vertically integrated, right? We, we, we have products that end on the shelves that almost leave our factory and go to the shelf, right? So these products we know have to be certified in a certain way to be sold. They are high value products and not really commodities. So because we're at that sort of tip of the spear end of the market, we have to be 100% you know, certified and 100% regenerative, 100% what that customer segment wants. Okay, so that's one aspect. The other aspect is, I would say, incentives. So there are, you know, the, the market works. The promotion of regenerative practices works. One of the incentives is carbon credits. So... We will, I'm discussing this at length. In fact, Cedric is, is on the call here as well. I think Shail is. We have a great working group that finds solutions to this. And that revolves predominantly about what do you do with all this waste from the, from the coconut tree, right? I mean, you, you look at this puppy and you can see immediately there's 18 of these leaves that fall off every year. That's a lot of waste. You get coconut husk, that's a lot of waste. And they contain a lot of carbon. What is the ultimate fate of that carbon? If we can figure that out, then the incentives will promote practices that lets us make things like biochar, that lets us compost things so the carbon ends up back in the soil. So that's a bit like I say, demand pool, and then there's incentives. 
Brilliant. Thank you, Andres. I have questions what related to that. Need, what you <laughs> don't need is that we are good people. We don't have to be good people. <laughs> I'm kind of baked into this. Right? I always make this disclaimer. We're not good people. The, we are incentivized to do what we do the way we do it. Which is important. It's not, it cannot, if business models don't work, they're based upon altruism. So we agree. Kat, uh, going to you, would you mind elaborating? Okay, so um, because Pilmico, um, as I've said, uh, sits at the value, beginning of the food um, value chain, and we have both the privilege and responsibility of um, working closely with the food and agricultural sector, uh, who we consider our partners for growth. Um, the company really envisioned a sustainable um, future you know, where food systems are resilient and equitable and that we are very much committed to ensure that th this will be achieved and is um, we are working towards for its achievement. So um, um, also, um, it is also embedded in our core values of the Boitis, uh, Boitis values, um, really um, making sure that um, all, the, all the sides are being um, taken care of and, um, and are well looked at. And also to answer the question on um, financing, no? um, we were able to partner with a microfinance institution. Uh, it's, it, it's based in Laguna. Um, to, uh, I, might, I might not know, but um, maybe um, members of um, um, Zoom attendees today may be coming from Laguna. So we partnered with CARD, the Comprehensive Agrarian um, Research and Development. No? So um, they have a microfinance institution and they also have a card bank. They also have a bank. So we partnered with them. And then we link um, our organ partner organizations to these um, institutions. And these institutions um, provides loan, um, lo um, provides the microfinance loans. And then um, this organization then in return um, buy uh, post-harvest facilities or whatever they would need. And then um, at the same time, um, we, at the end of Sipilmico uh, also at, at our end, we make sure that um, the organizations really pays the microfinance institution where they were able to loan them the, the amount. No? And um, also we make sure that we are paying um, the organizations with um, what is really meant to be paid for them because we wanted to make sure that they are able to pay off their loans um, from the card bank. That one. Thank you so much, Kat. And actually tied to that question as well, I'll go to Kat first and then to Anders, is about there's this general perception that uh, CSA entails higher investments or higher costs. Uh, the question is, is that true? And if so, how do you mitigate these increased costs? Do you, how do you balance productivity, sustainability, and cost efficiency, essentially being what's, what's the business case? Anders, you've touched on this a little bit earlier and you talked about um, the incentives of, of carbon credits. Uh, but I was hoping that both of you could elaborate a bit more on that, starting with Kat. Okay. Um, uh, as I've, I've mentioned a while ago, um, we have to avoid these values, integrity, innovation, teamwork, and responsibility. So the innovation is really embedded in our core, um, core values of the company. And uh, with this, now we have um, defined small incremental changes um, that positively impact in how we do things. There is always the constant drive to innovate, 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 and um, look for uh, alternative sources, um, especially more cost-effective resources. And then... Um, although you cannot deny for the fact that um, sometimes they will be costly. But uh, if you look at its uh, long-term effect, you will be able to understand it much and you will be able to appreciate it much better. Um, look at its long-term effect, not just its um, short-term or immediate effect. And then um, 
yeah, we, we do that. And then uh, we, because the company has a mindset no, of um, not um, viewing sustainability as a cost of doing business, but um, actually a, a way of doing a good business. That's fantastic. And presumably, if you don't mind a follow-up question, does that mean that the work here is not embedded into one sustainability or CSR department? It's really embedded into all levels of operations? Yes, yes, yes. Well, because it's 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 um, CSR driven, it's company driven, so everyone is um, putting on their stakes, um, and especially um, what we do internally as it resonates to our um, partner stakeholders outside the company. So we have that uh, we have series of initiatives um, as I've shared two of I think um, four initiatives I've shared um, a while ago, and and that's um, form parts and parcel of the entire innovations and um, uh, in, um, sustainability initiative that we work with the organization and other business in Let's Me Awaits. Thank you, Ken. Uh, Anders, over to you about incentives. Yeah, I I don't think we ever had a choice, to be honest, right. I mean, we, we couldn't build the business and say, hey, let's just use chemical fertilizers and, and, and all that stuff. I, I, just, I just don't think people would have bought the product, right? So, so we were not really faced with that decision where we sat at a board meeting and say, shall we use chemical fertilizers or not? It was not an option. Having said that, is it more expensive? Yeah, but not actually probably in the way that most people think. I'll tell you what the real expense was, delay. Organic fertilizer creates delays in maturing of the trees. So it probably costs us a year of potential income that we used organic principles. Okay, so that was the real expense. It's not that organic manure is more expensive than chemical manure, that's not the point. It was the delays. Okay, thank you, Anders. And then turning to another set of questions is how then do you provide advice to other organizations that are struggling to adopt CSA if, Anders, as you said, um, you never had a choice. So it wasn't really about transition, was it? it was from the beginning, it was built into your business model. And from CAT, from you as well, it's part of Pilmico's ethos. And so for another organization, how, what advice would you have for them if they were struggling to adopt practices? Uh, I'll starting with Kat, if you don't mind. Okay, so um, start small, good. Start small, um, and then align with your company values, and then this this will then resonate to your business operations. Um, it it's not how do you say it? It's not a uh, it's not a walk in the clouds. No, it's not it's not an easy feat to start with. Um, when we started, there was um, distance uh, on both sides, a lot of sides actually, but if you really keep on um, instilling it and um, help putting um, tangible and intangible benefits, if we do this thing, if we do this stuff, people will later on appreciate it. Just continue, get, um, continue. There's the, the sustaining power of um, introducing innovations, in, um, introducing um, sustainable practices, introducing um, climate smart agriculture practices, like continuously sharing it, continuously sharing it, um, people then eventually um, understand what you're trying to say to them. So that's that. Um, start small and then embed it into your core um, core values of the organization. Thank you, Ken. And Anders? Yeah, I mean, look, it, there is a little bit of a misconception that if you invest in ESG, you can make more money than if you invest in traditional. I mean, that's just, that's just that can't be right, right? If you go to a hotel buffet and you have access to everything, 
compared to going a hotel buffet where you can only access the vegan, of course, you're going to have less choice. And in this case, as an investor, you're going to have less return. Because if you have completely everything is open, you can invest anything you want. Obviously, you're going to get higher returns than if you narrow your investment objective, right? It cannot be otherwise. So it is more expensive. Um, I, I think often about mask, for example, mask shipping, who, who is in this you know, competition, global competition about shipping. It's, it's, it's really tough competition. A lot of these companies are not, not public, so you don't get, you know, nobody has any say in how they manage their business. But mask wants to run on green fuel, which is three times more expensive than traditional fuel. How do you break that? I don't know. They decided to take a cut in their margins and they hope that by example, they can get the others to, to follow their, their lead. But I don't think it's gonna happen. So it's really difficult. Thank you, Anders. Another question? It's actually, it sounds to me like it's more geared towards you. One of the participants asked, can you talk a little bit more about uh, carbon credit as potentially additional income for farmers? Uh, and what are some of the challenges that you see in the carbon markets in the Philippines, no. if any? Yeah, I, I can talk about that. Um, the, the process to get your carbon credits monetized is unfortunately, it's very institutionalized, right? There's very there's standards that you simply have to follow. If you develop your own calculation to say, here, here's my spreadsheet, please give me my money, here's the account. No, that's not gonna work. Um, so you have to go through a process and, and we are going through that process. We obviously don't intend to keep the coconut solution to ourselves. One thing we look at is, is essentially creating a pool of carbon credits for every new coconut tree that's planted in the Philippines, which is monitored by PCA anyway, right? So we will set this up. So the, the financing of replanting of coconut trees, which is really, really important, it can be paid out of these carbon credits. The problem with the financing replanting of coconut trees globally right now is that your customers, your borrowers, they own one hectare of land. The logistics of collecting back that money, whether they can pay or not, are, are formidable. I mean, it, it's, it's a complete barrier. You cannot lend to individual farmers and expect to get repaid and do your replanting that way. But if the finance sector can be repaid with the future carbon earnings of these trees, and once they're repaid, the carbon earnings fall back to the farmers, so they start earning. That's brilliant. Your collection cost is nothing. You don't even have to go visit. So your income is almost virtual. It's almost like having a fintech situation, right? Your income is from carbon credits where you don't have to go and scratch the ground and see is the tree actually there because PCA keeps a record of that, a ledger of that. So that's one way we use carbon credits. And, and I mean, I can only say watch this space because there will be, and there are a, a lot of, of efforts in getting agriculture, especially agroforestry, under a standardized carbon credit methodology. Brian, thank you, Anders. And I hope everybody from the financial institution sectors uh, on the call was paying attention to that as well. Uh, and um, then for Kat, there's one question that's specific to you. It's a bit technical. Uh, what is the byproduct of using rice hull as your substitute for bunker fuel? Is it ash or charcoal or biochar? How do you dispose or use it? Okay, um, specific to Filmico, the ash, uh, it's ash. The, um, the byproduct of the rice husk uh, are, are ashes. No? So um, 
we use this as an alternative mix for the cement of the facilities. So when we construct um, additional facilities in the plant, our um, engineers um, actually it took them for a while. It took, it took a while, no, um, trial and error, trial and error, because um, uh, what's um, not codified, but very innovative, Siguro. Very innovative. Our, our, our team members are very innovative. So um, we they found a way to mix it with cement. And so it's one of the materials that we use when we constructed our um, meat cutting facility and our um, slaughterhouses in Interlag. So in, in that's that. We, we mix it with the cement. Um, when then... Um, reuse it for another, um, upcycle it for another matter, upcycle it for another um, useful resource. Thank you, Kat. And then lobbying then back to Anders and discussions for you as well. Uh, why Rizal Palawan as the business location? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in order to, I mean, a, a lot of these things need scale, right? We, we can't do five hectares as a business. That doesn't make sense. And we certainly can't do five hectares in Palawan and five hectares in, in, in Tarlac and five hectares in Mindanao. It doesn't make sense. So you need a bit of contiguous area to, to, to operate on. In most places, you have land reform to deal with, right? So land reform says no individual landowner can own more than five hectares. And that means if you want to do three, four, five thousand hectares of coconuts, you need to talk to three, four, five thousand small farmers. A lot of people have tried and failed. So we knew that business model simply doesn't work. So the only the thing that is unique about Rizal is that it's tribal ancestral land. And tribal ancestral land is carved out of land reform because they have communal ownership of their land. And therefore, they are in that sense easier to negotiate with. You can ease, it's easier to strike a deal with the Panlimas, the leadership of the tribe, um, and then expect that the tribe will honor it. Uh, in practice, we could have a long seminar about what actually happened, <laughs> but let's not go there. Um, but but that was, that, that's, that's the reason we chose tribal land. So we had to interact with NCIP, National Committee for the Indigenous People. We did FPICs, our latest FPIC gave a 99% uh, support for our project. So we're very, very popular down there. But that, that's really, you know, land reform land, very difficult. And we don't want to break new land, right? So that, that was the other alternative. And so then we'll, we have quite a few questions left, but I'm going, we have to wrap up and move over to the, uh, the open forum. But just as a final question for the both of you, um, Andrews, you've talked about this a little bit. How do you essentially incentivize farmers to, to buy into your programs and adopt the CSA practices? You've talked a little bit about, about obviously, if, if, if there's livelihoods involved, people will come. Is there anything else that you would add to methods that you've adopted in order to uh, encourage farmers to, to initially partake in your program, especially when it wasn't already reaping results? And the same question goes for Kat. Like how do you... How, how do you get farmers on board? Um, maybe we'll start with Kat, if you don't mind. Sorry, Pranav, how do you get farmers? Uh, on board to adopt the practices that you are asking them to adopt from the communities around you. Okay, how do we do it? Um, we do it with, uh, with the government. Um, we need all the help that we can get. Uh, it, when we do trainings, we also invite the, um, our seed partners, seed company partners, we do that. 
and um, we also invite the um, agricultural um, personnel from the Department of Agriculture. Uh, we do a lot of stuff together because we cannot do it alone. And sometimes um, those expertise are not um, inherent to Pilmico and it's not inherent also to, to Abaitis Foundation. So, so we get experts do it with us, to do it with us. And um, constant follow-up, constant monitoring. Um, that's one of the things that we make to ensure that it's um, being done and um, it's being sustained. So um, aside from Pilmico, we, en we enlist the help of other stakeholders in, in doing that. Oh, brilliant. And obviously, as Croatia and the PPSA, the minute we hear that partnerships were involved, <laughs> very happy to, to hear it. Um, Andres, what about you? Yeah, the, it's it's a great question. Um, the, there's a bottom-up answer and there's a top-down answer. The, the bottom-up answer is we are engaging with a lot of small uh, farmers in, in South Palawan. And the way we do it is, is, is basically say, look, you have one hectare of let's say it's productive coconut trees because we can't deal with those that are too old, right? So let's say it's a hectare of productive coconut trees. We know what he earned last year. It's typically 25,000 peso, right? $500 a year. So we say, look, why don't we lease your farm? We'll pay you the $500 and then we'll give you a job. And the job is worth five times that, by the way. Okay, so his income, income goes up by a factor six. Talk about incentives. So that part works really well. Okay, and we are rolling that out. And we have a Danita project where we are, are building these little baby lion hearts where, where every time somebody has 25,000 trees as a community, we can move in and offer that deal. And then we have enough capacity scale to build a processing facility, okay? So that, that's, that's kind of the bottom up. The, the top-down industry point of view, I think is slightly different. The average age of the coconut farmer is 64 years. Their kids don't want a coconut farm, okay? They want a job in an office where they are caught. The industry is collapsing on itself. Therefore, it is becoming a trend that, and we talk about this on the United Nations calls and all these things where we say, look, what is the succession plan for the coconut industry? Because there's no new generation of new coconut farmers. And I think it is, it's not Lionheart, it's, it's 10 other companies. It has to be managed professionally. This is what happens with cane is always run by big companies, right? Pineapple is run by big companies. Oil palm is run by big companies. Coconuts, not at all. I think we're almost the only one, at least in the Philippines. So I think that is the trend that has to, we have to move this from a bunch of small farmers that are very unproductive into a commercial SME industrial solution. Which would necessitate a deep level collaboration at national scale involving all, all partners, especially I would say the private sector. Um, thank you both so much for your time for this. Anders, there's another question for you in the chat box, of, sorry, in the Q&A box, if you would mind just typing it out after this, that would be really appreciated. But otherwise, thank you so much, Kat. Thank you so much, Anders, for taking the time for this presentation. Really useful insights. If you can stay, please do. We're about to move over to the open, uh, open forum, where we'll hear from the other participants as well. So moving over, Vijay, if you could, to the next slide. And apologies for, for me constantly looking up, by the way. <laughs> That's the screen that I'm actually looking at. Uh, this one's a bit small, unfortunately. Um, yes, so uh, for the participants, we have these questions that are on the board. We've heard quite extensively from Kat and from Andres about 
the challenges that they've experienced and uh, the positive drivers, especially, I think we focused on quite a lot during this conversation. Uh, if we could spend maybe no more than two to three minutes in case anybody wants to uh, add your own points for things you've experienced when it comes to adopting um, climate smart uh, agricultural practices, that would be fantastic. All you have to do is use the raise hand function, which I think depending on the version of Zoom you're using should be at the bottom of your screen. There should be a little raise hand button or it would be under your uh, chat box. There should be a button there. So give people some time in case anybody wants to raise your hand, then we will unmute you so that you can share uh, your own views. Uh, Agnes, is that, was that an accident? <laughs> I see your hand is up. I think that may be an accident. Vijay, if you could mind muting Agnes. Oh, thank you. Does anybody want to contribute specifically to point number one and two? So any pain points or challenges or any positive drivers? Okay, I'll give people maybe another 10 seconds in case, or everybody basic, or I'll just assume that everybody agrees with the points that Anders and, and uh, Kat raised during their presentations. And so then turning to the third question is really, how can we better work together to promote, promote and adopt climate smart agriculture and low carbon agriculture production in the value chains that you're working in? Um, I think a good way to start maybe is if anybody has specific requests either for the PPSA or USA Green Invest Asia, bearing in mind that for the PPSA, it's very much geared towards who is in the network. So access to other organizations that you can collaborate with. And with USA Green Invest Asia, it's that technical expertise to support you. Would anybody like to raise your hand? And maybe voice some of the, the uh, resources, expertise, experience you'd like to get access to so that you can do this more effectively in your own work. Or perhaps it's something like the learning and accreditation programs associated with the ASEAN guidelines on responsible, uh, sorry, uh, ASEAN guidelines supporting responsible investment in food, agriculture, and forestry. No worries. I, I don't think we. Oh, Jasper has said something in the chat. Jasper, would you like to make your uh, voice, your thoughts in person? You've been given. Okay, this is Jasper Taliada from Phil Rice. What I see here is that for us to have a, 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 a good outcome for the climate smart approaches that we are trying to uh, promote in, the, in, in our country, for example, we need to, we need to have a, a sort of economic benefit first no? because that's what farmers, that's what people want, that they could earn something, they could 
put at the end of the day they could put some money into their pockets they could raise their family and 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 generate a sustainable income okay so that uh so we should develop certain uh development models development projects for these farmers okay that should work well just like for example what what uh, filmico is trying to promote with their project silk and we should make sure that that project will work and then any aspect about climate smart will be integrated into this development model so it becomes something like a co-benefit a co-benefit for this development uh, project in that way we could be more or less assured assured of the uh, sustainability of this development project that's that's my 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 idea thank you so much thank you jasper would you mind if i ask a few follow-up questions so specifically when you say we need to develop is there a particular segment that you think should be responsible for leading this the public sector would it be a coalition of private sector players uh, ngos who who's the we that you're talking about well it could be a combination of the government and the private sector to do that because uh we really need to to think about uh, these development models maybe the government can can provide funds they could f- provide leadership to this kind of project but we know that 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 the, the government will be have been very, very much constrained they cannot give so much to the to to help out say in the countryside the farmers in the countryside so in that way there will be an opportunity for ngos cso's or even the private sector uh, to develop models similar to what project silk that filmmaker is trying to do and in that way uh, we could uh, get some 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 uh pro- positive projects down the ground down the uh countryside okay thank you jasper so it's really looking to scale up successes like what bill miko is doing and like what lionheart is doing so really i suppose pulling out case studies to demonstrate how it can be a success amplifying the learnings of that making sure similar projects are uh but some organizations are taking ownership of developing such projects the funding is is secured through someone someone has to someone has to do the work right um i see that luci and catherine and edgar have been unmuted um would any one of you want to comment was were you unmuted because you asked to be so i was asked to um you've been, sac- you've been sacrificed luci probably raised my question which was not actually brought up earlier to the panel okay. i'm not sure <laughs> ah okay this is the question about ryan csf moments do you want to actually before i get to that which is to make sure that everybody else that has unmuted yourself did anybody want to respond specifically to the points that were raised by jasper okay would you please go ahead Okay so I'm not sure if this goes to the two panels who to our guests earlier and probably the rest of the participants can also share their experience no so I'm interested of knowing the collective and the continuing experiences or advocacy work from among our private sector partners in advancing RAI or CSA from among the business community including the new entrants to the business no 
and um, side by side by the, with the government, ensuring that the practices are spread, circulated, adopted, or embraced, and even sustained by the larger private uh, community. And along this, I'm sure, pretty sure that there are quite um, a number of challenges faced by our private sector partners. So along this, uh, how do you see, how are they seeing or looking at the CSO's roles to help them support or advance the whole or the entire promotion of RIE or CSA within the private sector? Great, thank you so much, Luchi. Actually, with that, we have two of our colleagues on the line, Erin Sweeney and Borj. Uh, Chris, uh, Borj, who both work for Grow Asia, working on the RIE work. Uh, Borj, would you want to unmute yourself and maybe respond or point out other partners that you know are currently um, uh, promoting the adoption of RIE that are already on the call? Although I think the latter might be a bit uh, a bit mean <laughs> to put somebody on the spot. Would you be open to responding, Borch? Hi, Prana. Yes, certainly. And if you don't mind just introducing yourself really quick as well, Borch. Definitely. Yeah. Yes, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Krissa Borja Borch from Grow Asia, Regional Programs Officer, and working closely on the adoption of the ASEAN RAI guidelines. And thank you, Ms. Wuchi, for your question. And well, there are, as Erin mentioned earlier in her presentation, there are a lot of partners in the region specifically working for RIE, not just Grow Asia. And there are certain CSOs and NGO partners that are actually adopting this in terms of um, helping the adoption towards smallholder farmers, which is very important. And that could be part of a best practice approaches that our private sector partners can also adapt and see how these could be uh, these activities and guidelines can help them uh, adapt the ASEAN RIE. And, oh, sorry, Pranav, if I may add as well, um, we are working on, as Erin also mentioned, there are a couple of case studies that we are working and will be released um, before the end of the year. And these case studies highlights agribusinesses in the region that have specific experience in a responsible investing in their supply chain. So there are a total of, of 14 case studies with different commodities in different countries and um, we'll encourage everyone to uh, stand by and also um, yes see on that um, the progress on these case studies that will be helpful for, for various partners. Thanks Panav. Thanks, Borge. Sorry for putting you on the spot, but thank you for that response. Yeah. Uh, so yes, everybody look out for those case studies once they're ready. We will make sure to send it to everybody that's on the call. Um, I've, I could actually, Vijay and Ami, put one of you on the spot and try to respond to both Luchi and Jasper's questions. So for Luchi specifically, what the PPSA is doing to support the adoption of RIE. And for Jasper's question, what role an organization like the PPSA plays in trying to promote the adoption of more uh, uh, CSA practices across the Philippines, whether it's at a project level or maybe something at the national level? Who would like to speak? I, will, I was about to raise my hand. Um, oh, thank you, Ami. Thank you. So um, I actually wanted to, um, first before PPSA, I wanted to share about the Filipinas Contributum, which um, I think Kat mentioned during the um, her presentation earlier. Um, so it's not specifically about 
um, climate smart agriculture practices or rice um, per se. But what they do is that um, this this is a private sector led initiative, and PPSA is, sits as one of the secretariat. Uh, part of the secretariat team is that we continue to find ways to maybe advance the knowledge of the companies in the call or in the in the consortium in the group and then we organize sessions to um, maybe help them explore best practices learn from each other learn from the practices and processes of each other and um, in fact the last session that we um, organized for the Filipinas Contributo members is um, the last two sessions were about number one, precision agriculture, and then number two, about um, inclusive agriculture value chains. So uh, we invite various experts and also we invite companies to present um, their current business models. And then we uh, provide a venue for them to discuss how they can scale up those models. So that's one way that we maybe promote RAI and CSA practices. And of course, in the um, sectoral or macro level part, uh, sectoral part, we also um, work with the government in, of course, drafting some national action plans. Uh, whatever inputs we get from this learning session, such as this one, we share it with them so that they can possibly include it in um, like roadmaps, uh, pathway documents, among others. And also at the value chain level, we also um, inject uh, these concepts in working group discussion so that when companies in organizations come together um, they also of course um, prioritize for example um, gender mainstreaming practices gender inclusive practices and other um, climate positive um, approaches so um, I saw that there was also a question on the role of the CSOs so for the PKG or Filipinas Contributum there are also civil society organizations included in the in the group and of course Wednesday um, once companies look at how they can pilot partnership models with the farmers, of course, the role of the NGOs are, are the roles are very important because there's the one they are the ones who facilitate the um, partnerships, among other, of course, uh, functions that they can um, do for the partnerships. Thank you for now. Thank you, Ami. Very comprehensive and hit every nail on the head. Thank you so much for that. Um, I think looking at the time, I think this is a good point to end the open forum. And Vijay, I'll hand back to you to close the session. If you could also share maybe the contact information for the PPSA in the chat box, just in case uh, people don't have it. Um, it, is in, it is in slides, I know, but just in case to make everybody's life a bit easier to put that into the chat box. Uh, thank you, Ami and Vijay. And Vijay, back to you. All right. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Pranav, for moderating the second session. And of course, uh, to Anders and Kat for their presentations and uh, the responses to the questions. And of course, to our um, uh, audience here who, are, who have actually uh, actively participated in the discussion. So I'll just uh, share my screen to some few uh, polls. So now before we end this um, session, we actually have two polls right here. The first one is we want you all to be part in suggesting the uh, next knowledge exchange session in PPSA. So if you could respond to the poll, which general topic or topics would you like us to organize next? You may answer in a multiple way. I'll just launch the uh, poll. All right, I, I hope you can see the poll. And then of course, the second question is, 
uh, are you interested to um, co-design or co-organize the uh, next or succeeding uh, learning sessions in PPSA? So I will give you uh, again around um, 15 to 20 seconds this time. And um, the answers to these poll questions are not anonymous, so we are chasing you <laughs> after this webinar session to contact you for uh, possible partnership in uh, organizing this, the, set, uh, the succeeding sessions. All right. Twenty-nine percent. I'll say uh, later the uh, the result of the poll. I think forty-seven, twenty-nine percent. Oh, all right. I think that's um, okay. I'll end the poll now. I'm sharing the results. So as you can see, um, a lot of interest uh, in uh, doing or in discussing value chain tools and frameworks. Um, also, uh, of course, um, equal votes for um, local governance in agriculture and youth in agriculture. And uh, we've also a lot uh, of votes from agric uh, to discuss agricultural research, uh, certifications and accreditations. And of course, uh, the crop specific learning exchanges. And many uh, are interested to uh, co-organize a learning session with us. So I think, um, that's a, that's a good react, uh, result uh, for us, uh, and of course, to our members and partners of PPSA. And um, there's another last poll, uh, just to hear the feedback uh, of, of all the participants. So how was the session uh, for you? So I'll just launch the, uh, the poll to help us in, you know, uh, re-evaluating our uh, succeeding sessions and of course adjust uh, based on this um, the ratings that you uh, that we will get from you. I'll give you also around um, ten to fifteen seconds to answer. So this time the the answers will be uh, anonymous. All right. All right. Uh, thank you so much uh, for um, sharing your feedback uh, about this session. And of course, uh, this will help us in um, as we uh, organize another learning session for you. And before we officially end this session, there is another uh, session coming right next week. Uh, this is another inter-country partnership learning exchange organized by the country partnerships of Grow Asia in Vietnam, Indonesia, and the Philippines. 
and uh, this will focus on the different partnership models in the coffee industry in the respective uh, countries. So you may scan the QR code that you see on your screen or um, you may visit our website at uh, www.ppsa-ph.org or of course you can expect an email invitation from us uh, so be sure you are subscribed to our newsletter. So I hope you already uh, scanned or noted uh, the QR code or the link where to register. So, all right. Um, again, uh, thank you so much to all our speakers, uh, all our panelists, and of course, to our, all our uh, participants for making this um, session productive. Um, of course, expect the email from us sharing with you the presentations and the recordings of this uh, webinar session. So again, thank you so much and keep uh, COVID free, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Thank Thanks you so much, ish. everyone. Vijay, yeah. Amit, do you want us to stay for some kind of debrief, or is that not necessary? We can. Thank you. Hello, uh, Ami, can I, can I go? Okay na? Ami. Yes, Kat. <laughs> yes, Kat. <laughs> Salamat. Bye-bye. Thank you.